Hello, this is James Bradley, known as JB East. I'm in Saigon. People call it Ho Chi Minh City, but it's Saigon to me. And today we're talking to Jeff J. Brown on the coast of France. And it's my idea, this format. Everyone knows Jeff, but they know a, a slice of him. They know Jeff, the China guy, Jeff, the uh, guy in France, fluent in French. They know Jeff who knows about this subject. Jeff's so surprising when he interviews people and you see a side of him that he has a depth of knowledge that you never knew. So I thought we would do this, is do Jeff 68 years and 45 minutes and uh, just get a picture of who this uh, big guy is, this Jeff J. Brown. So Jeff, are you up for it? I'm ready, sir. Fire away. Jeff, where were you born? St. Louis, Missouri in the United States. And did you live in St. Louis from like zero to kindergarten? No, uh, my dad was going to college there. Uh, he met my mother who was going to college there. <laughs> they got married. He quickly joined the Air Force and we were in uh, Nevada, Georgia, and I was in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma by the time I was about three years old. Oh, wow. So you were an a, a Air Force brat. <laughs> yeah, not for long. <laughs> and three years old in Oklahoma, did your life change? Did he get out of the Air Force, stay in the Air Force? Yes, he got out of the Air Force. My father was... Uh, Went to college as a and got a dental degree, which he hated. Uh, but he uh, went back to Oklahoma City, where my mother was from, and uh, she never wanted to leave there. And so he started a, a very successful practice there, but uh, was very unhappy with his uh, career. Yeah, with with his life choice, he was a. A very gifted athlete uh, out of out of high school. Uh, you know, he was all state. He took his team to all state champions. Okay, well, can't do a lot. You know, we don't okay. have time. Anyway, to he do. was he was a gifted he was a gifted um, he was a gifted athlete, and so he wanted to go to Harvard and play tennis and be a writer, but he his parents wouldn't let him. Okay, so he's a he's a dentist in Oklahoma. Yeah. And from, let's say, you know, three years old, four, five, six, into, uh, into the kindergarten, what was your life like? You were in a penthouse with servants or? No, or... no, it was, it was solidly middle, middle, upper class. We were in a neighborhood that was kind of sandwiched between very rich people and solidly sort of, you know, lower middle class. We were in the in-between. Uh, you know, public schools, all the kids went to the same public school, uh, Sputnik, J JFK. I, 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 had, I had one sister uh, at that time, uh, and then I ended, had a, a brother and a sister later with, an, uh, with my dad's uh, second wife. Okay. And then, um, you know, is this a, and then kindergarten, I mean, I'm I'm assuming you're like me. There was kindergarten and then yeah. eight grades and yeah. then four grades of high school. Yeah, exactly. It's easy for me. 1960 was kindergarten, um, and then first grade was 61. Second grade was 62. So you know, John F. Kennedy, uh, all through that time, uh, and uh, anti-communism, the space race, 
you, you know you know what it was like. But what was the family situation like? Um, the, the family situation was very good. I had really uh, loving uh, parents, although way too much corporal punishment at home and at school for me. Um, and uh, it, it, it all worked out great, you know. I mean, I, I, I had a great education. Um, I had a great upbringing, but then my dad, thinking about, you know, getting that writing degree at Harvard, decided that he wanted to have his Henry David Thoreau moment, wanted to leave dentistry, start a farm, and uh, that's what he did, and my mother refused to go with him, and so there was a very acrimonious uh, and painful divorce when in sixth grade, in 66. So 66, yeah. so the family, so it's your original mother and father till 66. Yeah. And what type of boy are you at that time from 60 to 66? Well, I was very hyperactive. Uh, I was just like, you know, the, the, the you know, the ever ready uh, bunny, uh, uh, you know, played f American football, you know, baseball, basketball. Um, you know, even, you know, my dad was a, was a, was a basketball star in college and in high school. And so he really wanted me <laughs> to fill in his, in his, in his shoes, but I was not a very good, um, uh, basket, basketball player, nor basket, baseball, nor football. So I ended up being a cross country runner and doing track. And, and, uh, where in Oklahoma? Oklahoma City, and, and until my dad, and Oklahoma City, suburb, you know, suburban Oklahoma City, until my dad, until my dad, go, go ahead. 20, the population was twenty thousand. Oh no, 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 no. Back then, the population was probably a half a million. It's it's almost a million now. We're in Oklahoma City, and what's the difference between Oklahoma City and Seattle, Miami, uh, Chicago? Well, uh, Oklahoma, would... Oklahoma City is Oklahoma is very uh, politically conservative. Uh, Oklahoma City, o Oklahoma is very religiously conservative. It's very Protestant. Um, uh, very few Catholics. Uh, very few Jews. Um, although I actually had we had in our neighborhood uh, two or three Jewish families, but it was a it was in in our in our milieu, it was, you know, that, that kind of, you know, 1950s liberal, you know, um, liberalism, you know, about, you know, you, if I said the word nigger, they would, you know, wash my work, mouth out with, with soap and I, I would get a whipping, you know, it was that kind of thing. But, but, it, was, it, but it was politically conservative. Well, Jeff, what, um, so your dad had uh, patients and those patients were uh, farmers, uh, geologists. What, what was the money flow in Oklahoma City? Well, it was all very, this was, you know, this is when we had TGNY, you know, variety stores. It was a lot of shopkeepers, a lot of small businesses, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of um, a local uh, department stores, you know, like C.R. Anthony. All, I, all these brand, all these names were all over. Uh, everywhere, uh, but then of course they got bought out and put out of business by by the big boxes, you know, Walmart, Target, uh, etc. What's the flow of money? I mean, the shopkeepers were 
in my town it was potatoes and maple syrup. Well, in, in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma it was in Oklahoma, uh, wheat, oil, and gas, and cattle. Wheat, oil, wheat, gas, oil, oh, gas and cattle. Oh wow, we're talking money. There, so there was money <laughs> down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And where were you uh, when John F. Kennedy was shot? I was in uh, my classroom at school with all those other richer or poorer kids than me, and all we were out playing on the <laughs> playground. Okay, the teachers came running out saying, Kennedy's dead, Kennedy's dead. It really marked me. We were frightened out of our fucking wits. <laughs> scared to death it had a had a huge impact on me it was terrible we just sat there the whole day the rest of the day the teachers and the students were all just crying it was awful that's what i mean people don't realize that it stopped the country it wasn't 911 where you could watch it on tv it totally i mean jeff is emotional I've been watching Kennedy stuff for the past week, and and I, you know, I I, I tear up too. It, uh, it it changed America. And did you see Johnson announce uh, Tonkin Golf? Did you see Johnson send the first troops and get the feeling things were going Europe? You know, old. yeah, yeah, it was awful. It, the, the whole. The whole society, the whole society was just in total shock, and <laughs> we were all, we were only in what third grade. We didn't know what the hell was going on. It was awful. But later, with Lyndon Johnson, 1964, yeah. and he said he got attacked in Tonkin Golf. I remember that on TV. Yeah. And then I remember my older brother's friends going to Vietnam. Were you aware of this? You know, of of the buildup the in Vietnam. At that point, no, I didn't really become socially aware at that point. Of course, we were going through a horrible, horrible divorce. And uh, it wasn't until 67, 68, when I was in middle school that, you know, that I really started to, to see all of that. So I know I missed Tonkin, but, you know, Nixon, the big buildup, you know, in Vietnam and the big push and Watergate. Okay, Get ahead of me. We're jumping. The divorce, '66. What what side do you land on? What what does it well, mean to you? My dad started a sheep farm, and um, so I agriculture became a very big part of my life. I I fell in love with it. I continued to go to school in Oklahoma City because the school was the school I was going. The schools I were going was going to were, were much better. Uh, then out in the countryside, and uh, but every you know, weekends, vacations, every, every possible every possible moment I could go down there, I was there, and I had a horse and rode horseback, and just I really got into, I really got into agriculture and farming, and wanted to be a veterinarian. That was became my lifelong dream. <sighs> And what was the land like when you're riding your horse in Wisconsin? The hoofs would be muddy and it would be hilly and soddy and green like Scotland. What well, was your land? Like? Well, what, the, what where my dad, where my dad, 
his farm originally was. He then moved down to Sulphur, which was about halfway down to Dallas on I-35. But um, at that time, it's it's kind of it's 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 kind of hill it's kind of hill country, a scrub oak country. And then he moved down to um, uh, Sulphur, Oklahoma. Uh, where it's where it's also somewhat hilly but not as woody, and uh, so uh, you know lots of pastures, uh, lots lots of you know uh, knolls, you know lots of you know uh, copses of trees and that kind of stuff, and and, and creeks and rivers. So you were shearing sheep and dealing with animals and able to ride a horse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was it. It really marked me, and and um, I, I really identify with it. And so, what happened now? Sixty-six is a divorce. You're uh, by the time sixty-eight, sixty-nine, you're moving into high school, and. Take me through high school and why you did. Uh, yeah, take what was high school like for me? I went to high school to qualify to play football. Period. You know, I I was bright, so I got good grades. But high school was just a re, just a requirement to play football. I was caddy for Vince Lombardi. You know, it was totally athletics to me. My yeah. high school. How about you? What was your high school well, experience? Well, since I was a flop at basketball, baseball, and uh, football, I ran cross country and track, and I was just, you know, okay. I, I think I made it to the finals of uh, the all-city track meet one year and came in sixth place out of six runners. <laughs> but uh, but uh, unfortunately... Well, huh? What was the flavor of your high school years? Well, I, I, yeah, the, the the divorce was very very difficult, and and it really made me rebellious. And unfortunately, after the uh, divorce, I became very very rebellious. And um, uh, at the age of fourteen, I started smoking and uh, and and drinking and doing stupid stuff, and really want really really rebellious and and. Um, even though I was still doing cross country and track, but I was very, very rebellious, and and I and we we I did a lot of bad things that I regret, and you know tore up a lot of stuff, and my friends and I were just completely wild, and um, and uh, although I continued to make good grades, I I don't know how I did it, but anyway, got got into doing doing too many wrong things, and then you know, high school, we had the busing, you know, the, 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 the busing where I spent two days in the schools on the black side of the, on the black side of town. And then blacks were brought in two days a week to our school. And, and it was a, it was a very tumultuous uh, time socially. Uh, and of course, you know, Nixon and Vietnam and, um, uh, so it was it was it was a wild time, and then finally, when I graduated, I realized I mean I can't keep drinking and smoking, and I was doing smoking a lot of dope, and 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 I just realized I I, I couldn't keep it up, and so I cleaned my act up when I when I when I finally graduated at eighteen to go to Oklahoma State University. And what did Oklahoma State University mean to you? You were going to what? I wanted I, mean, to, to, be, I was, I, I wanted to be I wanted to be a veterinarian. Uh, 
and it was my lifelong dream, you know, and, and help my dad, you know, with the farm and, and, uh, by the, uh, and, you know, so I was going down there as often as I could and helping him. And, uh, uh, so I wanted to be a veterinarian, but I was still very, very rebellious. Uh, I sued, I sued uh, Oklahoma State University uh, for uh, pr police brutality because they arrested me and uh, the uh, ACLU took my case and uh, I was actually in uh, uh, graduate school at Purdue uh, uh, several years later, uh, well, th three, three years later and I won. I won the case and... Uh, and, uh, and you were arrested for what? Uh, the cop, the campus cops were taking, there's an international mall at Oklahoma State with all the flags of the different students, and they would take the American flag down like it was, you know, the, the Bible, and then all the other international flags, they would just drop down to the ground and throw them into a box, and um, I was standing there watching that, and I said, man, you should, you know, you should take better, you should show as much respect for these other flags as you do. Uh, the American flag and the Oklahoma flag, of course, which was next to it, and they didn't like that, and they handcuffed me, and I mean, I they 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 pulled a pistol on me, and, and at the at the campus cops, and they they kind of brutalized me. They cut, they put handcuffs on me so tight that it cut into my wrists, and they threatened me and all this other stuff, and threw me in jail. <laughs> And uh, so uh, the county jail there in uh, Stillwater, Oklahoma, and uh, it was all during finals week, so it was not a good timing for me. But uh, I did get out, and I was so upset yeah. that I, I, uh, the ACLU took my case, and okay, uh, I eventually that, won. Yeah. Before yeah. That, that, that's up and new. Let's stick with this case. Did you have a reputation? Did the police know this Jeff Brown? Or no, this was just no, not really. But I had, I had long, I had long hair. I looked like Jerry Garcia. You know, I, I, I had long hair. I, I would go to school with overalls on and no shirt. <laughs> okay, so I say, I want to say to the audience that this was a time of great divisiveness in the United States. And it was the long hairs versus the short hairs yeah. and the hip moon in the country. And you could take one look at Jeff with his long hair and the way he was dressed. And this was the son of a bitch that needed uh, discipline and let's arrest his ass. I really and led kind of, was, yeah, I really led kind of a double life because I was also on the, uh, the, the university rowing team. And, and so I was quite an, I was, a, I was a good athlete and, um, we actually made it to the uh, Royal Canadian Henley Regatta up in um, St. Catharines, um, Canada, uh, uh, my senior year, and made it to the finals. And so I was, I was an athlete, I was a farm boy, and I was also just a rebellious, you know, um, a rebellious um, anti-establishment, uh, you know, um, uh, person. And uh, it, so it was it was really a, a, a strange time, a, a tumultuous time. And so I guess okay. me, me, me and me and myself were very, very tumultuous, too. And you were a good student who yeah. graduated with what what 
What degree did you have? I had got a degree in animal sciences when I realized the veterinary the, the veterinarian school was not going to let me in because I was too hippie. I was too, you know, long-haired. Also, a lot of politics, you know, rich farmers, you know, donating 50 grand and their son or daughter gets into vet school. I couldn't do that. They weren't going to let me in. And so I got a degree in animal uh, sciences uh, to uh, uh, with the goal of going down to, to my dad's farm and working with him and eventually taking it over. So I studied, you know, uh, you know, animal production, crops. Uh, entomology, you know, uh, statistics, uh, farm farm economics, you know, that's that's the standard, uh, the standard uh, 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 animal science degree. You graduate with that, and then there's a jump to Purdue. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I, I decided I decided to go ahead since my dad wasn't really ready. Uh, I decided to go to uh, graduate school. I got accepted at Purdue University uh, in Indiana, and I got my a degree in ruminant nutrition, which is, you know, the, the, the nutrition of cows, sheeps, cows, sheep, and goats. And, um, and I graduated from both U uh, Oklahoma State and uh, and I get with 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 scholastic honors, and I my research at, at Purdue got uh, published in a prestigious um, the Journal of Animal Science. Uh, my research at Purdue got published, so I, I scholastically I did okay. Okay, so what year you just graduated? What month and year was that? That would have been January of 1978, and then I went back to Oklahoma City. Um, I didn't really know what to do. My brother-in-law and I, we opened, uh, we started a woodworking shop because my, with my grand, anyway, I, I don't, I can't go into it, but my, I learned about wood and woodworking when I was younger with okay. my grandfather. So we opened a, 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 a shop called Wood Forms and we built furniture, custom built furniture. Um, and, um, we built furniture for rich people all the oilies, all the oilies in Oklahoma City and restoring their furniture. Uh, did that for two years, waited tables uh, to, to help pay the bills because uh, it didn't make as much money as we would have liked. Uh, waited tables um, <clears throat> in the evenings and on weekends. And then I decided I kept trying to apply for jobs go, to go internationally. The company said, we won't hire you because you don't have international experience. And I said, how can I get international experience if you want to hire me? And they would say, that's your problem. So I started looking at the Peace Corps and joined the Peace Corps. Okay, but let's go back. Almost nobody goes, it was an American, goes international. What did international mean to you? Well, why not Florida or, or, or uh, San Francisco? I mean, what? Where is international? Was it in well, Thailand? What, or? what happened at, at Purdue, the, the agricultural department had like 150 or 200 Brazilian students. <clears throat> they, they, they practically, oh. <laughs> they are a huge part of the ag department. And so I became very good friends with, with Brazilians. And I ended up on a daily basis. My lab mate was a Brazilian. So I started learning Portuguese. I, I started learning Portuguese, and I ended up speaking more Portuguese than English. 
and he kept saying come to brazil come to brazil and so i went to brazil learned fluent portuguese got a minor in portuguese and went down there to become a corn and, and soybean baron and uh, unfortunately i well fortunately i didn't get the financing so i came back fluent in portuguese but um, ready to now go other elsewhere internationally and no one would hire me you know purina and ADM and Cargill and all these other companies wouldn't ag, ag companies wouldn't hire me, so I decided to join the Peace Corps. And uh, how did you get into the Peace Corps, and how, where did you go? Well, I um, I applied, and of course I had a really good resume because I had ag experience, farm experience, uh, woodworking experience. Um, home building experience back with my grandfather in Oklahoma City. So I, they originally offered me uh, the uh, Tuvalu Islands in the Pacific, but I, which would have been a nice Albert Schweitzer kind of experience, but I wanted to learn a world language. And so I took the chance and said no, because I wanted to learn either uh, Spanish, French, or, or, or Arabic. And the second offer was Tunisia, which is Arabic, and so I accepted that, and I was in Tunisia as an agricultural agricultural uh, agent, extension agent uh, in the for the dairy farmers, uh, and I was there from uh, 1980 to 1982, 25 months, and I learned fluent Arabic. 25 months in Tunisia. Yeah. And what's the difference between Tunisia and Oklahoma City? What <laughs> Well, it, it's yeah, you didn't yeah, yeah. you weren't you weren't in the jungles of Vietnam. No, I was no. In, in Tunisia. What what did Tunisia do to an Oklahoma boy? Well, it opened my eyes. Um, I, I you know I slept on the floor on a foam mat. I took cold showers until it was ten degrees in my cinder block uh, tiny house, um, and then I went to the public bathhouse to take my baths. Uh, where the water was hot. I cooked on a two burner stove with a bottle of gas. I grew a garden. I washed my clothes, I, my own clothes. I, I, you know, I've worked with farmers, you know, who never had, you know, worked with, with Holstein cows before. And so I was able to help them. I wrote a manual in Arabic about how to take care of Holstein cows. And that got actually adopted by the Ministry of Agriculture, which makes me very proud. And uh, I worked with really, really, you know, just salt of the earth people. And it was a very, very humbling experience. Where's the girls in this story? Uh, grade school, high school, college, grad school? Well, I was boy crazy. Bottom. I was boy crazy from kindergarten all the way, all the way through high school. I, my first love was at Oklahoma State, and then I had another love at Oklahoma State uh, and Purdue. And uh, in fact, we, we actually went to Tunisia together, but it ended after that. And uh, th so I, 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 I've, I've been a serial monogamist all my life. It wasn't until 1988 that I met my wife. And, you know, is there any opportunity to date a, a Tunisian girl as a, as no, a boy from Oklahoma? No, absolutely not. That was one of the, that was one of the no-no's. You do not, you do not try to fraternize with the yeah. local ladies because, uh, uh, you know, it's, um, 
we were I was in Beja, B-E-J-A. It's a uh, in the foothills of the of the Atlas Mountains, and beautiful, just beautiful. In fact, Beja is, is a corrupted word for cow, vaca in uh, in Roman and in, in Latin. So uh, yeah, no, that was a no-no. You just you didn't even talk to him unless unless the farmer introduced his wife or his his family. You didn't talk to the you didn't talk to the wives or the or the women folk. That was a big difference. I went to Asia and I could date and you know. Yeah. So Tunisia and it's uh, why do you leave and where do you leave to? Well, I, I learned to read, write, and uh, speak fluent Arabic, and I went went the extra step and learned modern standard Arabic, is what which is what you hear on the radio and read in the newspapers across the Arab world. I even learned my, my first language to learn to type in was Arabic. So my Arabic was really, really good. Um, the U.S. Embassy Agricultural Trade Office was, they liked me. And so they were introducing me to business people who would come to Tunisia to do business. And I met uh, their representative for the for Worldwide Sires before I even left Tunisia and they offered me a job. And so my first job was with Worldwide Sires from 1982 to 1985. And I was the regional director of marketing for all of Africa and the Middle East. And it, it was, and I think still is the world's largest exporter of frozen uh, bull semen for artificial insemination. And how, and then, so to 80, we're up to 85, and what's the next step? Well, from 82 to 85, I learned French. Um, uh, I traveled to like 30 countries in Africa and the Middle East. It really opened my eyes, really changed me. Um, and then in 80, uh, but then you remember the strong dollar, uh, Volcker and the, the Reagan and the strong dollar. Well, it put, put um, me out of business in Africa and the Middle East to sell bull semen, so they let me go. I was the most expensive and least profitable region. And uh, then the U.S. Grains Council hired me. Can hired, you stop for a second? Yeah, uh-huh. Jeff, you, you traveled to 30 countries in Africa and the Middle East with this bull semen situation. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. In, in fact, it may even be more. If I count, if I count the Middle East, it's, 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 it's at least 30, if not more. Uh, and, I, and it was a, it was a fun time. It was an exciting time. It was swashbuckling and it was the best, yeah. uh, just an amazing, you know, three years of my life. Just unbelievable. That was too. That was, wow. What a positive time. So now you, they, your expensive and uh, economic change, and what's your next step? Uh, the U.S. Grains Council hired me, uh, which is a trade association that represents the uh, the uh, uh, feed grain uh, uh, farmers and all the food processors and grain, you know, um, grain companies and agricultural companies in the United States to promote the use of corn, barley, and sorghum. Uh, Algeria, they decided to open an office there, which at the time was Marxist-Leninist, um, Arabo-Arab nationalist, and I'm very proud to say I was the first American to go in 
after the, they got their independence to open up a representative office in such a difficult situation. And I was, uh, I was responsible for the markets of Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia. And I spent from 85 to 1990 there, uh, met my wife in 88, uh, and we, we traveled all over Africa again, which is, it was a fun time. 85 to 90, what's the difference between Tunisia and uh, Algeria, you know, versus aligned with uh, the, the United States and France and the West, you know, Algeria, you know, five times bigger than France, um, uh, massively wealthy and massively beautiful, and they're anti-American, anti-imperialist, um, uh, um, and so it was, it was. It was mostly just the politics. I mean, other than that, you wouldn't know that you can drive from you can drive from Rabat to Tunis across Algeria. And you wouldn't notice the difference. Uh, it's all the same. It's all the same geology, the same Roman Roman roots, you know, Roman ruins, uh, Atlas Mountains, uh, the the Mediterranean coast, and the Sahara Desert. And the food. And the food is just so, to, to, to die for. I, I I'm hungry right now. The and the next step sounds like your wife. You use the word met my wife or yeah, so you're working in the situation and we're in 1988 yes and uh, the uh, commercial attache there at the u.s embassy and i were good friends his wife is french and she kept telling me about her niece in paris and i should go visit her so it was basically she was the she was the you know the arranger i flew to paris and met uh, florence my wife in March of 88, and uh, we wasn't very impressed. Uh, we, neither of us were very impressed. I took her to see Eraserhead. <laughs> uh, who, who did that? David Cronenberg? I think maybe that was his first movie. But, uh, and, um, but it just so happened that she and I, I had no idea, but she was coming down to visit her aunt, and we were supposed to, we were on the same airplane, and so... We ended up kind of being together more often. They invited invited me over for dinner. You know how it goes. And so I decided I offered. She was kind of stuck in Algiers, and so I offered to take her on a road trip down to the uh, Rufi, the Rufi um, uh, Canyon. Uh, and uh, by the time we came back, we saw Roman ruins and mount snow capped mountains and sand dunes. And by the time we came back, we were in love. So how does that change your situation in terms of where, you know, get me out of this? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, what happened, what happened was, is, you know, she, we, I invited her to come live with me like three months later and we were married in September of 88. So it was very fast. It was just six months from the time we met until the time we got married. And from 88 to 90, um, uh, Algeria, you know, had the elections where the is the Islamists, the feast, the Islamic party won the elections. 
and it was starting to get very very fundamentalist uh, islamic fundamentalist and it was starting to get a little bit scary a little bit worrisome and there were starting to be riots and um so i asked i asked the 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 the, the us grain council to to, to, I, we wanted to leave. I had been there for 10 years in the Arab world. And, and so they offered, uh, Japan opened and then they wouldn't give me Japan because they've had someone who could speak some Japanese. And then right after that, China opened up and um, I, we said yes. And so we, in, in 1990, we went to China and I was with the U.S. Grain Council from 90 to 94. And then I opened the first McDonald's bakery in, in China from 1994 to 1997. Where are we in China? Beijing. And in China, my wife and I had our two daughters. Uh, 1992 and 1996, we had our two, our two, our two children. Okay, so let me recap this. Uh, Tunisia, no, Algeria, you leave what year and you leave China when? I mean, you were there six we went, years or five years? We went to, uh, we were, I was in Algeria from 85 to 90. Um, then we were in China from 1990 to 1997. And uh, then I resigned uh, from the McDonald's bakery position. I, I, uh, was the managing director and installed and started and managed uh, the bakery. It was a, quite an exciting experience. Uh, but because of corporate in, internal corporate politics, I uh, resigned in 1997 and we took our two children back to France and we opened up the first CD warehouse, American franchise CD warehouse in France, in Europe. <laughs> Not, not counting England. And so for the next five years until 2001, we owned and operated a used CD and DVD store in Caen in Normandy in the north of France. Okay, so I'm, I'm traveling through France and I see you in your CD store and I say, what the hell did you do in China? What was China like? <laughs> well, I... I ended up writing three books about it, and uh, just, I encourage people to read the China Trilogy because it really, that was seven years we'll never forget, and um, and um, it's just there's too much to go into. It was like a drug. It was like, it was I'm, like I'm standing in the store, and I'm just asking, what was China like? It was fun, it was exciting, amazing. fun, exciting. Amazing, uh, uh, angry, uh, made you angry, made you happy, made you sad, made you elated, made you feel like you know you could do anything, made you feel like you could do nothing. I mean, it was the whole spectrum of. It was very, very intense. It was extremely, extremely intense at that time during that part of China's uh, post Mao. This means what? Well, it's just uh, the the it was street level jungle capitalism, and right. and it was just no one trusted anybody. Uh, everybody was trying to rip everybody every, everybody off. Uh, you, it was just it was like as I said in 
in my book, it was like a five-pack-a-day, you know, um, Nat King Cole nicotine habit. You know, you, you knew it was bad for you, but you just couldn't get enough of it. You know, the hooks were in you, and every day was like an exhilarating drug trip. It was. It, it's hard to describe, but uh, it no. was extremely, extremely intense, and but it was intoxicating. It was very intoxicating, and... And we and, and we actually had to deprogram for months after we left China. It took us like six months to a year to deprogram from that from that just absolute. It felt like you know from going from a 220 volt you know charge you know running through our bodies to you know living in northern France. I mean it was quite, it was just we had to, we had to completely unwind. It's just unreal. You know, I I interviewed a number of Vietnam vets with about PS, uh, PTSD, and I never fought, and I don't want to compare our experiences, but being plucked out of China and going back to the West, you're calling it deprogramming, but there's that disorientation, yeah. you know, like a soul out of the jungle, right? Yeah, it was, it was, just, yeah, it was really crazy. Uh, it was really, really crazy, and um, but we missed it, you know. We, we even though we knew it was a five pack a day nicotine habit, we missed it. It was just really crazy. That's what that's, that's what drugs do, and then, of course that was like a drug experience for seven years. And, and we were raising our daughters there, and it was just wild, totally wild. So now, so now Jeff speaks Portuguese. Has been in Brazil. Yeah. No world enough to type and write uh, doing business in China and knows Chinese now he's back in France doing business speaking French and uh, <laughs> I mean you went international yeah and, I, sh and, I sure know. did and I learned three years of Latin in uh, high school <laughs> That's right. That was my, my first language was Latin, which which helped me with the French and the uh, the Portuguese a lot. So, and so now you're in France. You're in the um, it was the DVD business. Yeah, the used CDs. C Amer Americans uh, might have remembered back in the 1990s a a a, um, a, a sign a, a company called CD Warehouse and. We bought yeah. used CDs and resold them, and, and we had a magnificent store in Caen, which is the home hometown of William the Conqueror. And we spent time, and then we 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 lived in Aromanche on the coast, uh, the D-Day beaches of Normandy. It was a really wonderful time, but it, it's tough being a it's tough being a, an entrepreneur in France um, because of all. It's just tough. I don't want to go into it, but it's really, really, really tough. And then, and then, and then, they started burning CDs. This was even before Napster, but they were starting to burn. They had, you know, burning towers where they would steal one of our CDs and then record ten CDs, and they started stealing our artwork, you know, in the in the boxes. And so it was time to go. So in two thousand one, we knew there was no future in the used CD and business and DVD business, and so we decided to go back to Oklahoma. In 2001, and uh, and um, since my mom and dad really had never been able to be grandparents, and I was actually on the the plane that was on TV on uh, November 14th, 2001. It was the first uh, U.S. commercial aircraft that 
re-entered American airspace after 9-11 and it was a United flight that went to New York and I was on that airplane that all the cameras were pointing at and so then I flew back down to Oklahoma and my daughters and wife had already been there and they were settled in and going to school and and uh, they, Jeff, yes before we start with this Oklahoma I would uh, let's say I have some of your listeners here they know you as quite an intellectual as quite a as an author as a deeply read person and I'm surprised by your background that you were a businessman you know you were selling uh, you were promoting and wh what was your intellectual life were you reading yeah, all was, this time all this time I never I have never not had a book in my hand I, I mean even since I was in grade school I mean I, I was always reading books and um, always 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 and I was doing a lot I read a lot of fiction and um, high school, junior high, high school, and college, and then uh, when I got to Tunisia and, it be, and things became more political, I started reading history, and uh, from from that time on, I really quit reading fiction, and that's all I have been reading is biographies, history books uh, since uh, since going to Tunisia, and, I, and I'm reading one right now, and and I'll read another one when I finish it. And, I, and that's, that's, that's where I've learned a lot. A small comment here. I don't want to. But when I journeyed into authordom, uh, an author told me to stop reading fiction, that you'd get things confused, and that there's enough fiction to read. And I haven't read any fiction since then. And I think it's been a big help in terms of being able to evaluate world events. Let's get off that. You're in Oklahoma now. You've got a French wife that you took out of Beijing, and now you took her out of France. Yeah. You took two kids out of China. You took two kids out of France, and now you're in the middle of a very different culture in yeah, Oklahoma. Yeah, and it was post-9-11. And, what's and, going on? Well, it was... Uh, support yeah. yourself and the kids adjusted. It was not a good nine years, um, except for my family. You know, we did get to spend nine years with my mom and my dad and aunts and uncles and cousins, and and that was that was the good time. And and my daughters, you know, got to see they're they're half American and half French, so they got to you know American some American experience. And <clears throat> but for my wife and me, <laughs> it was a complete and total disaster. <clears throat> um, I can't, we went back thinking I would get another job in China with all, everything I had, and guess what happened? Of course, you know uh, SARS, and so China was off, uh, off, and we, 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 we had money we were living off from the sale of the CD CD warehouse store. We were spending it like crazy, um, and I even called the FBI and the CIA. You know, I thought, oh, heck, they would want someone like me, you know, with all the languages I speak. Luckily, neither of them would hire me because because um, I had not lived three of the of the last five years in the United States, and they didn't want to do the background checks. I'm so glad that didn't work out. Anyway, we just we just went down and down and down and down, and I, I it were it was really awful. I was selling uh, $25 a month uh, accident life insurance policies to poor people. 
um, who couldn't afford the premiums, going from door to door, um, you know, after all that we had done, no one would hire us because we were we were just too exotic, too threatening, too too different, too experienced. No one would hire us, and so I was <clears throat> I was uh, selling insurance, you know, from door to door in poor neighborhoods, which was eye opening. And my poor wife ended up selling vacuum cleaners, sewing machines, and shoes uh, at Sears, Sears and Roebuck, and then, and, and then selling shoes at Dillard's, which is a department store. That's where we were. I mean, can you believe it? And um, so we did that for about uh, four, four years up until about 2004, 2005 decided to get into the real estate business and and we got a financial backer uh, we expanded rapidly we ended up with 44 doors you know rental properties with 44 rentals and unfortunately there was a loan on every one of them and in 2008 the rape of the middle class hit and all of our lines of credit shut down and all of the people living in our houses lost their jobs and moved out and the whole thing came crashing down like a, 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 a you know a house of cards we lost everything and by 2010 uh we uh we we, we, we there was nothing left and um unfortunately it was a it was not it was never adjudicated because it's a long story but we had a guy sue us trying to get money out of us and uh uh representing some of the rent because they were rent to rent to own and so they tried to sue us and uh, we spent fifty six thousand dollars on legal fees up until 2010 and we literally uh had nothing left and um lost the house and <laughs> so how do you get out of that and and get to china well our lawyer said listen i you know as soon as i tell them that you that you can no longer fight this case they're going to all the creditors and we had everybody from bank of america to home depot to god you know uh, wells fargo i mean we had like 60 creditors with all the different banks, they were going to come after us, you know, knocking on our door at midnight and stuff and with our two daughters. And so uh, we decided, he said, can you leave the, he said, you've got international experience. Can you leave? And we said, yes. And so during that time we were there, we actually got certified to teach, be, be school teachers and uh, in, certain, in a number of subjects because of all that we learned and knew. And um, so I actually started teaching in 2008, and my wife was trying to keep the business going so that we at least had money to eat up, to live on and buy food until 2010. We got a job at, a, at an international school in China in 2010. Um, uh, our older daughter had just graduated from high school, so she stayed there and put herself through college. We had no money to help her. And our eighth grade daughter um, went with us back to Beijing, and we lived there from 2010 to 2019. Beijing. Yeah. Well, well, no, the last three years, 2016 to 2019 in Shenzhen on the border with Hong Kong, all all international and, schools. 
And what's the difference between China in the 1990s and China <laughs> in 2000? I wrote three books about that. <laughs> But it's just, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just the, the, the amazing change in the attitude of the people. It was no longer, you know, fast buck Freddy, and it was no longer, you know, this street hustling. It had really calmed down. Um, it had not only infrastructurally, but the mentality of the people. It was much, much more Confucian, much, much more Taoist, much, much more uh relaxing and so uh uh anyway and so that's when i you know took off for you know and wrote 44 days my first book and to see if this was true in the rest of the country and it turned out to be true and uh so we were there till 2019 and our younger daughter you know graduated from beijing normal university and uh, we had a school in shenzhen for one year called professor brown and finally, my wife wanted to change and, and to retire. Uh, so we moved to Thailand in 2019, and then a COVID hit. And anyway, we uh, had came back here in 2020. Uh, couldn't get back into Thailand because of the all the borders were closed. And so we ended up retiring here in, in uh, July of 2020. And that's where we are today. So... You know, so we're up to, okay, so we're up to today, but I think the very, very surprising bottom line here for the uh, audience, and I'd love to see what kind of comments we get on this interview, is, um, you know, I, I kind of plugged into your life just two or three years ago, and I would have thought this interview would be about... An uh, you know, was studying art all his life or political science or, you know, uh, in deep government background work or something like that. You know, I'm surprised by the business background, but the thread is the same thread as mine. I was a businessman and I didn't realize it, but I read a tremendous amount, you know, since grade school through high school. I now realize I read much more than my brothers and sisters that on every business trip, I had a thick book. I was reading, 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 reading all my life. And that I find that is a, a string to pull in your life that has really made you who you are, flexible to interview people, so knowledgeable. I mean, you've got, you just cannot replace uh, six decades of reading, and it's not reading the Wall Street Journal. In my experience, you know, friends read Forbes magazine and the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, constantly, constantly reading. You don't get to be the thinker that Jeff J. Brown is unless you're constantly reading books thick enough that if you drop them on your foot, it hurts. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, 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 I now look, I hadn't, you, I never thought about it, but now that you mentioned it, I mean, I never realized it, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I was a reader in grade school. I mean, I still have my first book my parents gave me, abridged versions of, you know, Washington Carver, George Washington Carver, and 
you know, Sleepy Hollow, The Legend. I mean, I still have that book, and so reading has been, my dad was a very erudite. Uh, my mom, although she read murder mysteries and stuff like that, she never stopped reading. So we, it it, it really was um it really was a, a part of a part of my upbringing, and I now realize it's probably more important than I give it give it credit. Well, we've done almost sixty minutes. We could do another hour. But <laughs> I don't think I can handle it. <laughs> if this could be an advertisement or an encouragement to anybody who is, I, I, you know, young listeners, uh, parents. I mean, a girlfriend of mine who was quite a reader and became an author, uh, she's Japanese. She said her parents told her as a young kid, um, we won't give, you know, you can't buy any candy. You can't go to any stores and buy trinkets. But if you go to the bookstore, we have an account and you can just walk out with any book you want. And I did that with my kids. They they could, they could had no money to go downtown, but they could go to the bookstore and everything was free. They just put it on the account. And I've got kids who are readers. I credit, you know, reading with my ability to talk to a guy like Jeff J. Brown and to have written books myself. So flavor I would get there is read. Look what it did for Jeff Brown. You know, you can get to be 70 and have read every every article in the Wall Street for 60 years, but you don't know anything. It's like a bunch of gum wrappers in your brain. <laughs> Jeff J. Brown is an example of reading important books over a period of a lifetime. Really, that's the bottom line flavor I get of your life. Jeff, if you'd like to sign it off with, what do you? What's the chicken juice that you use out of your uh, uh, chicken? Today is the first day of the rest of my life. <laughs> okay. Well, you want to leave it there? Then this is JB East uh, in Vietnam. I'm so glad I know much more about the background of Jeff J. Brown. And Jeff, thanks for doing this. Thank you.